turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to hear from Scott Box. He's local and the author of Heroic Disgrace, Order Out of Chaos, Hope Out of Fear, Worship Hero, A Worship Hero Story. And in fact, um, Scott is one of James Blend, the producer of this program's dear friends, and I've asked him to conduct the interview. So he will do that later in the second hour of today's program. James Blend and Scott Box coming up later today. We'll also encourage you to pray for believers who are being persecuted in Niger. It's one area you probably haven't heard a lot about with regard to the persecution of believers. But as we look around the globe and we focus our attention on those who suffer for the cause of Christ, it's um, we do well to learn more about them, to pray for them as if we ourselves are being persecuted as the scripture says. So that's coming up also in the second hour of today's program. Well, the Oregon Secretary of State says no, there is no clear purpose for mortgage tax deductions. Now think about that for a moment. For you and your household, is there no clear purpose for mortgage tax deduction? Well, this time, according to Eric Fruits, uh, Dr. Fruits, writing for the Cascade Policy Institute, points out that they're coming for your home. Earlier this month, Oregon Secretary of State released an audit of Oregon's mortgage interest tax deduction. And according to that audit, the tax deduction is regressive and inequitable. Those are in quotes. Well, the audit is unusual in that it calls into question policy decisions made by the legislature. In particular, it claims that the deduction has no clear purpose. Incredibly, the audit recommends that the legislature come up with a clear purpose and direct a state agency to make sure the tax deduction is meeting that clear purpose. It's well known that one clear purpose for the mortgage interest deduction is to foster home ownership. Seems like a pretty good purpose to me. For many first-time homeowners, the tax deduction is the primary reason they can afford to become homeowners. More importantly, these um, first-time homeowners enter into 30-year loans based on the expectation that the interest on those loans would be tax-deductible. Deductible, rather. Yanking that deduction away would increase many homeowners' tax bills by thousands of dollars which might make it impossible to be or maintain home ownership. Even more outrageous is the Secretary of State giving what amounts to marching orders to the legislature. Every session, the legislature passes scads of laws that have no clear purpose. Yet this particular audit seeks to upend one measure of the tax code that benefits a majority of American voters. Well, one can only hope the Secretary of State's audit falls on deaf ears, but the fear is that it may be the opening shot in the state's assault on home ownership and, most importantly, homeowners. Once again, Eric Fruits is the Vice President of Research at Cascade Policy Institute, giving us a heads up of what might be coming. The uh, Cascade Policy Institute, by the way, is Oregon's free market public policy research organization, a good place to consult if you're looking for inside information on what's happening here in the state of Oregon. 
Well, President Biden's 2023 budget plan was released today, increasing funding for the police and cementing his party's turn away from the anti-police rhetoric and policies that many lawmakers and activists embraced after the murder of George Floyd two years ago. Politically, it has not been a good sell. Well, the plan sent to Congress allocates more than $32 billion in fighting crime, especially violent crime, with $20.6 billion going to the Department of Justice and $3.2 billion in discretionary resources for funding local and state law enforcement, much of it in the form of grants to hire more police officers. About $30 billion in mandatory resources will be funneled to support law enforcement, crime prevention, and community violence intervention. Well, the proposal directs $17.4 billion, an increase of $1.7 billion, above the uh, 2021 amount for the Department of Justice law enforcement. That sum includes $1.7 billion for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or ATF, to crack down on gun trafficking. U.S. attorneys will... Uh, be given $72.1 million to prosecute violent crimes. And while the budget appears to be aimed at boosting police numbers and resources to tackle crime, it does so while treating national gun proliferation as a primary culprit, promising to increase regulation of firearms, enhance the ATF's National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, and modernize the National Tracing Center. The plan also emphasizes police accountability, acquiescing to progressive pressure after the wave of social justice riots during the summer of 2020 that alleged widespread police brutality. One example, the budget proposes $106 million to support the deployment of body-worn cameras to the Department of Justice law enforcement officers, as well as an impact evaluation to assess the role of these cameras in advancing criminal justice reform. More on that in the days ahead. Uh, Today, the announcement was made at the president's budget. Well, in that vein, 57 percent of U.S. households paid no federal income tax last year as the COVID um, took a toll. According to a study, more than half of Americans paid no federal incomes uh, tax rather last year. Uh, The nonpartisan tax policy center estimates that 57 percent of U.S. households paid no federal income taxes in 2021, up substantially from the 44 percent before the pandemic. And since most workers pay payroll taxes, the share of Americans who pay neither payroll nor federal income was only 19 percent last year, slightly higher than the 17 percent rate before the crisis. More than half of American households paid no federal income last year, the nonpartisan um, uh, group says. Well, Howard Gleckman, who's a senior fellow at the Tax Policy Center, said COVID-related job losses, a decline in income, stimulus checks and tax credits were largely responsible for the increase. The expanded child tax credit was a large factor. It substantially reduced the income tax liability of more than 100 million households and temporarily turned many from payers of small amounts of federal income tax to non-payers. With many of the tax programs ending, he forecasts the number of non-payers will decline to 42 percent this year and 38 percent by 2029. Well, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich and at least two Ukrainian peace negotiators showed symptoms of suspected poisoning following a meeting in Kiev earlier this month. Uh, people familiar with the matter told the Washington uh, Street Journal, rather the Wall Street Journal, that Abramovich, who's been involved in attempts to end the war and the Ukrainians, suffered from symptoms including red eyes, constant and painful tearing 
and peeling skin off of their faces. In fact, Abramovich lost his sight for a period of time. The victims of the suspected poisoning have since improved and their lives are not in danger, according to the report. Western experts who investigated the suspected poisoning said it's difficult to determine whether the symptoms were caused by a chemical or biological agent or by some sort of electromagnetic radiation attack, according to the report. And sources told the outlet they believe the attack was perpetrated by hardliners in Moscow, hoping to sabotage the peace talks. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to wind our way through some of the headlines over the last three days, so stay with us. And coming up in the second hour, James Blend will interview his friend, Scott Bach, Box, rather, author of Heroic Disgrace, Order Out of Chaos, Hope Out of Fear, A Worship Hero Story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United States will accept up to 100,000 Ukrainians fleeing Russian aggression, according to the president. He made the announcement on Thursday. Details of that plan are still being worked out, we're told, but both the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program and the Humanitarian Visa Program will be utilized with an emphasis on reuniting families. The U.S. hosts the third largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world after Russia and Canada. President Biden also pledged $1 billion in humanitarian assistance for Ukrainians uh, internally displaced by the war. World Relief, which has resettled 7,300 Ukrainian refugees, representing four out of ten admitted to the United States over the past decade, welcomed that announcement, saying we are in close contact with many of these individuals, almost all of whom have loved ones now at risk in Ukraine. That's a quote from the president and CEO, Mayol Green. In a press release, and he went on to say, we are grateful that President Biden's announcement today seems to open up the likelihood of expedited family reunification and other avenues of protection. World Relief also noted its current work with local churches in western Ukraine, Slovakia, Romania, Moldova, Poland and Hungary, saying most Ukrainians who make the difficult decision to leave their homes are relatively safe in neighboring European countries where most would prefer to Uh, to stay in part because they hope and pray um, to return uh, some to a safe, free Ukraine, Green said. But for those who have family in the U.S. or for whom voluntary reparation is repatriation rather is impossible, some may prefer the option of resettlement to the U.S., where we are um, also eager to welcome and support them as they replant their lives. Uh, so in addition to Afghanistans who were Afghans, rather, who were welcomed into this the uh, country, now Ukrainians will also be welcomed uh, into the country as well. After weeks of progressive backlash and corporate protests from the Walt Disney Corporation, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law the Parental Rights in Education bill that prohibits the instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity in elementary school classrooms, at least from kindergarten to third grade. Dubbed the Don't Say Gay bill, which is a mischaracterization of the characterization of the point, uh, it's um, uh, called that by critics. The law is intended to restore power to parents to determine when and how their children should learn about such sensitive subjects. Contrary to its misleading nickname, the bill does not outlaw teachers, administrators or students from using that word. Rather than a um, bigoted effort to ostracize LGBTQ students and faculty, the bill is explicit that it is designed to keep curriculum about sexuality out of kindergarten through third grade classrooms. 
classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with the state standards. The bill reads after the Republican dominated state legislator decisively passed the bill early this month. Governor DeSantis faced pressure from Disney, a company that's extremely influential in the state, to kill the bill, given the objections of some of its LGBTQ staff, certainly under pressure. Well, despite the lobbying of uh, Disney's CEO, who called the governor uh, to express his disappointment and concern that if the legislation becomes law, it could be used to unfairly target gay, lesbian, non-binary, and transgender kids and families, The governor declined to acquiesce. He told supporters in Boca Raton uh, in a video obtained by Fox News that Florida's policies must be based on the best interest of Florida citizens, not on the musings of woke corporations. Well, prayer and laying on of hands is protected at execution. Well, prison officials may limit religious practices at the time of death, but only if they show there are no better options. Well, John Henry Ramirez was sentenced to die, is sentenced to die for the brutal stabbing of a convenience store clerk in 2004. But he's been told he now has the right to ask that his Southern Baptist minister touch his foot at the time of death and say a few words out loud. The court decided. In other words, he has the permission, the freedom to lay on his hands and to pray for this man who has apparently repented. We agree that prisons have compelling interests in both protecting those attending an execution and preventing them from interfering with it. That's what Chief Justice John Roberts wrote. Even so, he went on to say, Texas categorical ban on religious touch is not the least restrictive means of furthering such interests. Well, in um, the year 2000, Congress passed the Religious Land Use and Internationalized Persons Act or Institutionalized Persons Act, which said the government may place a substantial burden on the free exercise of religion, but only if it serves a compelling state interest and the rules aren't any more burdensome than necessary. Well, that metric for measuring legitimate restrictions has become important in recent court cases. In Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, for example, back in 2014, the Supreme Court said the U.S. government had a good reason for wanting women to have access to birth control, but didn't show that forcing religious employers to provide insurance that covered all forms of birth control was uh, the best way to provide access. In 2015, in Holt versus Hobbs, the court said in Ar- an Arkansas prison had legitimate reasons to value security, but couldn't ban a Muslim inmate from growing a short beard unless it proved that uh, caused a real security risk. In 2020 and again in 2021, the court decided in two cases that people being executed should be allowed to have a spiritual advisor in the room. Well, the majority returned to the standard in Ramirez versus Collier this week or last week, allowing for the laying on of hands at the time of execution. By passing the rule, Congress determined that prisoners like Ramirez have a strong interest in avoiding substantial burdens on their religious exercise, even while confined, Roberts wrote, because it is possible to accommodate Ramirez's sincere religious beliefs without delaying or impeding his execution. We conclude that the balance of equities and the public interest favor his requested relief. Well, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said in a recurring opinion that there are problems with the uh, standard. In oral arguments last year, he expressed concern that courts were being asked to 
uh, micromanage prisons, deciding ever more specific questions about religious practice. What does compelling mean, Kavanaugh wrote, and how does the court determine when the state's interest rises to that level? And how does the court then determine whether less restrictive means would still satisfy that interest? Good questions for which there are no good answers. Well, he argued the court uh, uh, should not rely on its own intuitive sense of best prison policy for assessing acceptable risk, but instead look to common practice in the states and in history. Although the compelling interest and least restrictive means of standards are necessarily imprecise, history and state practice can at least help structure the inquiry and focus the court's assessment. Well, the lone dissent from the ruling came from Justice Clarence Thomas. He argued that Ramirez isn't really interested in prayer, but is using the legal system to delay execution. It isn't about religious liberty, Thomas said, but gamesmanship. The other eight justices, including his fellow conservatives, disagreed. They found ample evidence of the sincerity of Ramirez's religious beliefs and pointed out that he wasn't asking for anything unusual. Ramirez seeks to have his pastor lay hands on him and pray over him during the execution, Roberts wrote. Both are traditional forms of religious exercise. And at time uh, at the time of uh, execution, it will be permitted. Well, President Biden says that Putin cannot remain in power. The White House walked back the comment moments later, but the president pretty much doubled down on it days later. Well, the president said Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power in a speech on the invasion of Ukraine. That was back on Saturday. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, he said, for free people refuse to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness, the president said at the end of a speech at the Royal Castle in Warsaw, Poland. They have a different um, future, a brighter future rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light of of decency and dignity and freedom and possibilities. The president then added, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now, when the president makes that kind of statement, uh, the question is, does it reflect U.S. policy or is it an offhand personal comment? And that has been pretty much the debate ever since when a president of the United States makes such a statement. It is um, interpreted to mean this is uh, our effort to remove the the current sitting president of Russia from office. Well, the White House official um, issued a comment minutes later saying that Biden was not calling for regime change. The president's point was Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbor or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change, the official said. And earlier today in a press uh, press conference, the president clarified that he was speaking uh, personally out of his outrage over what President Putin has done up to this point, but was not calling for regime change. There were a series of questions, however, that followed in which the president was asked, when you have to walk back so many of your statements, is that sending the wrong message to world leaders as well as Vladimir Putin? The president said it was ridiculous to imagine such a thing, but that was one of four recent statements that have had to be walked back, if you will, made by the president surrounding this and other issues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue our walk through some of the days, so the weekend's headlines. But coming up in the second hour, James Blinn, the producer of The Georgine Rice Show, is going to interview his good friend Scott Box. His book is titled Heroic Disgrace, Order Out of Chaos, Hope Out of Fear, A Worship Hero Story. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky set ground rules for future peace talks, should there be future peace talks. Well, the Ukraine president, he revealed some of his country's ground rules for a peace agreement with Russia on Sunday. But Russian authorities moved to censor that interview, perhaps because Zelensky said the peace talks haven't mentioned Ukraine's supposed Nazism. Well, a spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force said the country's strategy lures Russian planes into air defense traps. It seems to be working. Well, following a North Korean missile, Kim Jong-un has vowed to develop more powerful means to, of attack days after the country's first ICBM launch in more than four years. In the uh, Border Patrol probe, the allegations that Border Patrol agents allegedly whipped Haitians trying to illegally enter the U.S. were debunked, but the probe is ongoing and no apologies are forthcoming. Trey Gowdy reflected on the confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson and questioned whether the proceedings were constructive or just partisan politics, as they so often are. Mark Levin says Russian President Vladimir Putin is a war criminal who bears responsibility for some of the world's most horrific atrocities. And bad news for Uncle Joe. President Biden's job approval rating has declined to 40 percent, the lowest level of his presidency, as the president continues to see eroding support. White House Principal Deputy Secretary, Press Secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre tested positive for COVID-19 after returning from the president's trip to Europe. Dan Hoffman says what scares Vladimir Putin at the heart of this conflict is democracy. It's not that NATO represents a threat. And Washington Post columnist Max Boot insists that President Biden's call for a regime change in Moscow was deliberate and rejected the media's use of the term gaffe. Well, it's since been clarified, sort of. Senator Marco Rubio predicts that the likeliest uh, thing you are going to see from Putin is his trying to use chemical or biological weapons in a way that makes it look like someone else did it. Calling Zelensky uh, unimpressed, Richard Engel, NBC News chief foreign correspondent, claimed he doesn't believe that Zelensky was overly impressed with President Biden's comments in Poland about Vladimir Putin. Ian Pryor reports that a Wisconsin school district is using ideological training to hide its radicalizing hand and to help students conceal dangerous actions from their parents. Representative Jody Heiss reports that at a South Carolina rally, President Trump suggested federal workers should be at will employees and face termination at any time for any reason. Rebecca Grant joins others in suggesting that despite the White House cleanup attempt, I'm still fixated on President Biden's remarks about Vladimir Putin and regime change. Mike Garcia complains that as Russia's military makes advances through Kiev, the growing threat of China looms while our president does little to detour it. Andrew Brown says the CDC lost the confidence of the American public during the COVID-19 pandemic. Child Protective Services seems next in line. And suggesting it can be clean, a natural gas supplier said there are misconceptions about the fossil fuel that powers everything from cell phones to electric cars. And yes, there is a connection. Well, in a case of double standards, Disney is fighting Florida's parental rights law. And again, that law would prevent the subject of sex education, including trans education, uh, from kindergartners through third grade, but ignores Uyghur genocide while filming in China. Apparently, that's okay. President Biden's gaffes are raising tensions in the Ukraine war. From the story in National Review, they write that President Joe Biden spoke in Warsaw, saying that Russian President 
Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power as a result of his invasion of Ukraine. The sentiment is admirable, but for uh, Biden to include those words in a speech will, in all likelihood, not only stiffen Putin's resolve, but will also rally support in the higher echelons of the regime behind him and will allow Putin, however ludicrously, to portray the U.S. as a would-be aggressor, propaganda that may be believed by the population, softened up by the messages that they have been uh, hearing for a very long time now. And then, as um, National Review's Zachary Evans notes, a White House official issued a comment minutes later saying that Biden was not calling for regime change. The clarification was the right thing to do. There was no choice, really. But the net effect is that Biden can be portrayed by Moscow as bellicose while simultaneously coming across as weak to nervous allies in the east and hopelessly muddled to allies elsewhere and, of course, to adversaries and the undecided across the globe. In The Washington Times, Senator Jim Risch The ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee said, I wish he could um, stay on script. Whoever wrote that speech did a good job for him. But my gosh, I wish they would keep him on script, end quote. From another story, uh, Blinken, during a press conference in Jerusalem, noted, I think the president, the White House, made the point last night that, quite simply, President Putin cannot be empowered to wage war or engage in aggression against Ukraine or anyone else, adding, as you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. In this case, as in any case, it's up to the people of the country in question. It's up to the Russian people. That was in the Washington Examiner. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron, he has scolded Biden for his lack of maturity. He's been around longer than anybody else and scolded him for his lack of maturity. Will Smith assaulted Chris Rock over a joke about Smith's wife, of course, after he laughed at the joke and then sobered himself up and took to the stage. Well, he followed that up with a confusing speech after winning the award for Best Actor long after anyone else would have been escorted out of uh, the event for assaulting the comedian. From Japan, the unedited, not-at-all-safe-for-radio version was made available. Uh, Karl Markovich, he says, in real life, when someone gets assaulted on the job in front of everyone, people don't just go back to typing, but hopefully they can get their I Stand With Chris Rock buttons ready for the next show. The G.I. Jane joke that got Smith upset was aimed at his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, an apparent reference to her hair loss. A story from late last year looks at the ailment that caused her hair loss, alopecia. Squad member Ayanna Presley tweeted out support for Will Smith's violent reaction. And Megan McCain said tonight really hasn't helped with the stereotype that most people in Hollywood are insane and get away with anything because they're celebrities. Larry Elder pointed out on Twitter, if I punched out everyone who insulted me, my hands couldn't take the punishment. While prominent Russians are risking everything to voice opposition to the war in Ukraine, the story in Hot Air lists a number of Russians who have come out publicly against the war in Ukraine and a look also on Twitter at a Putin oligarch who has posted a scathing anti-war commentary. In a poll, 65 percent disapprove of the president's handling of the nation's economy. The cost of gas and groceries top that list of concerns. In another poll, the president's approval drops yet again. For NBC News, Biden at 40 percent approval is his worst showing so far. Big drops are coming from women, 51 to 44 percent, and Latinos, 48 to 39 percent. Also from that story from 
the NBC News poll. It has people favoring a Republican-controlled Congress to Democratic control, 46 percent to 44 percent. Not much spread between the two. While that seems unimpressive, it's the first time NBC had the GOP leading since 2014, when Republicans added 13 seats to their House majority and flipped nine Senate seats to take full control of Congress. Three states temporarily waive their gas tax, Georgia, Maryland, and Connecticut. From the story, the national average price for a gallon of regular gasoline is $4.24 as of the 25th of this month, and that the month rather, and that's the average. Well, according to AAA, some states, particularly those on the West Coast, are seeing average prices of over $5 a gallon. AAA's data shows they took a look in, on Axios at how several states are working to alleviate the Biden inflation crisis. You might want to check that out. President Biden's budget seeks a big tax hike on the rich, which includes taxing unrealized investment income, unrealized investment income. Jazz Shaw notes that just as a reminder, under the current system, the top 10 percent of earners in the United States, those making more than one hundred and fifty one thousand dollars per year, pay more than 70 percent of the taxes collected by the government. The top one percent making more than five hundred and forty six thousand dollars a year pay nearly 40% by themselves. The idea that high earners aren't paying their fair share is simply a display of intentional ignorance. Bill Gates calls on rich nations to move to all fake beef. All fake beef. That doesn't sound too good. We'll tell you more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Scott Box, author of Heroic Disgrace. In fact, he happens to be one of James Blend's very close friends, and James is going to conduct the interview. That's coming up in our next hour. Well, Bill Gates calls on rich nations to move to all fake beef. From the story on the Hill, I do um, I do think all rich countries should move to 100 percent synthetic beef, Gates said when asked about how countries can help to reduce methane emissions when it comes to food production. You can get used to the taste difference. And the claim is that there's uh, there's going to uh, make it taste even better over time. Thank you, Bill Gates. That will be all. Chef uh, Andrew Gruel says junk that's uh, higher in sodium, saturated fats and chemicals. In addition, regenerative beef farming helps the environment. The factories this, uh, well, stuff, he used a different word, is made from will be nothing more than energy vampires with overpaid labor. So a bit of a difference of opinion. Well, Miami Beach has declared a state of emergency after a rash of shootings. Miami Beach will impose a midnight curfew starting Thursday after two shootings and injuries to police officers over the weekend shattered what had um, been a relatively calm spring break. And that may just be the start of restrictions. Mayor Dan Gelber and city manager Alina Hudak said uh, they would ask city commissioners to extend the curfew for the next weekend. Somehow assuming this is all about... um, One particular group, Director Billy Corbin, tweeted, Miami Beach has declared a state of Jim Crow. I'm not sure how he got there from there, but there you have it. Oscar hosts uh, mocked Florida with ignorance as they uh, as three of them chanted gay over and over again, demonstrating their uh, ignorance of the actual bill, what it says and what it does. 
The Utah legislature overrode Governor Cox's veto of a transgender sporting ban on Friday. The Utah legislature's Republican supermajority overturned the governor's veto of House Bill 11, a bill that banned biological males from competing in female sports. Cox, who is a Republican, argued that banning transgender guys from competing in girls sports is discriminatory and could um, contribute to their higher than average suicide rate. It was a dubious rationale that completely ignored the legitimate and expanding threat to female sports. Having been a female athlete, I uh, would agree. Not affirmation of their false identity claims. Well, truth matters. Meanwhile, Indiana's Republican-controlled legislature is expecting to also override Governor Eric Holcomb's veto. A seventh Russian general has been killed in Ukraine. It's fair to say that Vladimir Putin's invasion has not gone as easily or smoothly or quickly as he likely anticipated. Now over a month into his special operation, as he referred to it, the Russian army is struggling to make headway. And on Friday, it was learned that the Ukrainians had killed a seventh general who also was the highest ranking officer yet to be killed in the war. Lieutenant General Yakov Rezantsev was killed in um, uh, at an air base near Kherson, which Russia is using as a command post, a report stated. Kherson was the first city the Russians were able to occupy, but they have had to deal with daily protests from Ukrainian residents. There were also reports that troops in a Russian unit killed their own brigade, uh, brig, yeah, brigade, I wasn't sure it was brigadier, but brigade commander after they had suffered severe losses. President Biden today unveiled his new billion, um, his millionaire, billionaire income tax as part of his proposed budget for 2023. The president will unveil the plan for a new tax on the super wealthy, targeting the richest 700 Americans. The tax is dubbed the billionaire minimum income tax, would raise a 20 percent minimum tax rate on all American households worth more than 100 million dollars uh, due to the fact that the super wealthy Uh, Largely live off income generated from their investments, which are taxed at a lower rate. They effectively pay an average 8% of their income in taxes. Of course, the president ignores the fact that investment income generates great wealth that spurs the U.S. economy more effectively than federal government, which um, continues to spend more money running up the national debt. The question remains whether this proposed tax will motivate Democrat Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to jump on board the president's Build Back Better socialist spending plan. Stay tuned. Meanwhile, Elon Musk mused about starting his own social media company. Having conquered the electric vehicle market in spaceflight, Musk uh, may now be eyeing social media. As the culture war rages and big tech is increasingly committed to steering the censoring speech, according to its own leftist agenda, Musk has begun expressing his frustration with the thought police. In a series of Twitter posts on his uh, account to 79.1 million followers, he stated, and I quote, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? He followed that up with uh, by asking, rather, is a new platform needed? His second question brought a host of individuals calling on him to build a new one. When asked if he was being serious, Musk affirmed that he is giving serious thought to this. Should Musk follow through on his uh, idea? His challenge would be attempting to do what several other social media startups have so far failed to accomplish. Get a massive number of people to ditch the speech squelching platforms of Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. If anyone could do it, could fund it, Elon Musk 
might be the guy. Well, the U.S. and the EU announced a new partnership to undercut Russia's energy. And President Zelensky set ground rules for a peace agreement. Russia censored him. So the Russian population has no idea. Houthis launched an attack against Saudi oil facilities. President Biden removed them from the terrorist list. And Hunter Biden helped secure funds for a biolab contractor in Ukraine. The IRS is still paying pandemic benefits to dead people. Your tax dollars at work. Well, on this day in history, 1797, Nathaniel Briggs of New Hampshire received a patent for a washing machine. Thank you, Nathaniel Briggs. 1930, the names of the Turkish cities of Constantinople and Angora are changed to Istanbul and Ankara. 1969, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the 34th president of the United States, dies in Washington, D.C. at age 78. 1979, America's worst commercial nuclear accident occurs with a partial meltdown inside the Unit 2 reactor at the Three Mile Island plant near Middleton, Pennsylvania. 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush presents the Congressional Gold Medal to the widow of U.S. Olympic legend Jesse Owens. 2005, the Colorado Supreme Court throws out the death penalty in a rape and murder case because five of the trial jurors consulted the Bible and quoted scripture during deliberations. The U.S. Supreme Court would refuse to consider reinstating the death sentence of Robert Harlan, who would end up being resentenced to life in prison for the murder of cocktail waitress Rhonda Maloney. 2009, nearly 4,000 cities and towns in 88 countries switch off non-essential lights for Earth Hour to highlight the threat of climate change. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, Wells Fargo says it will pay $110 million to settle a class action lawsuit over as many as 2 million accounts its employees open for customers without getting their permission. Well, time won't permit me to go into a couple of other subjects that we'll probably get into tomorrow. One is the dangerous ramifications of reshuffling the Iran nuclear deal, which is um, is critical. And also the Oscars. We won't go into some of the details, not only the fact that there was a violent expression of uh, dissent, uh, but the fact that uh, Apple's film Coda is the first movie from a streaming service to win Best Picture Oscar. And Will Smith... Well, he hit Chris Rock. That's pretty much all you need to know. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And then in the second hour, we'll hear James Blinn's interview of Scott Box. Heroic Disgrace is the title of the book. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, and you will be glad that you are, because coming up in the next couple of segments, the producer of the Georgine Rice Show, James Blend, is going to interview a good friend of his, Scott Box, who's the author of Heroic Disgrace, Order Out of Chaos, Hope Out of Fear, A Worship Hero Story. That's coming up in the next couple of segments. We're also going to tell you about what's happening to believers in Niger and how we can pray for them. That's uh, this hour. Well, after being derailed in early March by Russia's demand for protection against U.S. sanctions, the negotiations over Iran's nuclear program are pretty much set to resume in Vienna after Iran's uh, holiday, a celebration of the Persian New Year, which started on Monday. 
And although the negotiations are approaching the finish line, specific details about what already has been agreed to have um, not been divulged by the administration. A State Department spokesman said on Monday that an agreement is neither imminent nor certain. Hmm. Well, Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein, whose last name I won't attempt to mispronounce, said on Wednesday, we believe that today we are closer to an agreement in Vienna than ever before. But he warned, uh, we reminded the Americans that we will not cross our red lines. Well, he likely was referring to two key issues that reportedly remain to be resolved. Tehran's demand that its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps be granted immunity from U.S. sanctions imposed on foreign terrorist organizations, which apparently the administration is prepared to do, and its insistence on receiving a guarantee that the U.S. will not withdraw from the agreement, as President Donald Trump did in 2018, which, of course, this administration cannot do. Well, the Revolutionary Guards have become a major stumbling block of the negotiations because they represent many aspects of why Iran was sanctioned in the first place. Not only do they control vital portions of Iran's covert nuclear weapons efforts, but they also control Iran's ballistic missiles. Uh, They orchestrate Iran's proxy terrorist network. They serve as the regime's repressive uh, Praetorian Guard, and they dominate important sectors of the economy in Iran. Well, U.S. sanctions on the Revolutionary Guard are a necessary punitive action that drains their access to funds from their front companies and deters future terrorist attacks. If the administration is entertaining uh, lifting the restrictions that are currently in place, well, that would reverse that protection that we currently enjoy. Well, if the sanctions on the Revolutionary Guard were uh, lifted, the regime in Tehran will pocket more benefits from a new agreement than under the original deal, which didn't include lifting uh, non-nuclear sanctions. Also, the Revolutionary Guard will gain enormous economic benefits that they surely will use to finance malign activities. An agreement could uh, be announced as soon as next week and is sure to be allotted as a diplomatic triumph by the Biden White House. But the deputy special envoy for Iran And two other diplomats who resigned from the U.S. negotiating team because they were alarmed by the scale of the concessions the United States was willing to make at the talks have strong reasons to disagree with that spin. The administration appears to be on the verge of negotiating a weaker, shorter and more risky deal with Iran than the Obama administration did in 2015. Well, another flawed nuclear agreement with Iran will at best postpone the time of reckoning while a hostile and vengeful regime recovers from sanctions, builds up its ballistic missile arsenal and exports terrorism to intimidate its regional adversaries and drive the U.S. out of the Middle East. And although the Biden White House is sure to claim that the agreement puts Iran's nuclear program back in a box, the walls of that box will become increasingly weak as the most restrictive provisions of the deal are rescheduled to sunset. And after those restrictions sunset, the agreement is likely to die in the darkness. Iran, allowed to build an industrial-scale uranium enrichment program, will be put on a glide path uh, to a nuclear breakout or a covert sneakout, as they are uh, referring to it. Well, a revived nuclear deal would allow Tehran to trade short-term restrictions on its nuclear program that it could easily renege on, as it has many times before, in return for long-term sanctions relief. But this sanctions relief for Iran wouldn't bring relief from Iran's proxy attacks. And again, we're being told that we're closer than ever before to reentering this new and even weaker agreement being negotiated by Russia with Iran. 
Meanwhile, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as uh, was hoping that moviegoers would be riveted by the surprises of Sunday's Oscar ceremony. There certainly were some surprises, but they probably didn't bank on a physical confrontation between two of the superstars. Well, the Academy was hoping that movie lovers would unite and spark an uptick in ratings for the ninth Academy Award, the 94th Academy Award. Well, late into the ceremony, comedian Chris Rock told a joke, um, and it did not uh, sit right with Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's husband, Will Smith, who initially laughed at the joke, but he marched up on the stage. He smacked Chris Rock while he was about to present the Best Documentary Award. ABC cut out the mics just as the two started shouting at each other, but uncensored international feeds picked up the two stars yelling profanities at at each other and ultimately to the crowd. Well, moments later, uh, Smith really wasn't moments. It was quite a while later. Uh, Smith won the Oscar for Best Actor and apologized to the Academy and his fellow nominees, but not to Chris Rock. Well, the confrontation was a shocking turn in another uh, otherwise subdued show that featured largely predictable but nonetheless historic results. With the diversity in this year's crop of Oscar nominees, audiences saw a number of milestones set. As I mentioned, CODA was the first film produced by a streaming service to win Best Picture. It won three overall. Now, a streaming service is uh, something you don't just pick up on your television. You have to subscribe, and then you have access uh, to the content. Coda was one of those. Ariana DeBose uh, became the first, uh, well, queer black woman to win an acting award, taking home Best Supporting Actress for West Side Story. Queer black woman. Does that mean she's a male? Not altogether clear to me. Anyway, Troy Kotzer, well, I do know what that means. Troy Kotzer of CODA became the first deaf man to win an Academy Award for acting. Dune won the most awards with six. The trio of Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes assumed hosting duties during Sunday's ceremony. Uh, For the last three years, the show wasn't um, that bad to host. This year, perhaps more challenging uh, to do so, given the violent outbreak that we witnessed, if you happen to to watch it. But the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences is launching a formal review into Will Smith and Chris Walk rock the altercation during the Oscars Sunday evening. In a statement today, a day late, later, the spokesperson for the Film Academy told Variety magazine the Academy condemns the actions of Mr. Smith at last night's show. We have officially started a formal review around the incident and will explore further action and consequences in accordance with our bylaws, standards of conduct, and California law. Now, Chris Rock has uh, announced that he does not intend to press charges, but there could be other consequences. The Academy previously issued a statement on Sunday stating that it does not condone violence of any form, even though the films that they... uh, a lot or contain a great deal of it. A rep for the Academy didn't immediately respond uh, for more uh, details, but they are pondering the response. Well, Smith stunned the Dolby theater crowd and viewers at home when he took to the stage um, and well, did what he did. The joke touched a nerve. Um, after rocks joke Monday, he strode on the stage. He slapped the comedian across the face, went back to his seat and then made some rather, Brazen comments. Well, being able to absorb a power slap and keep on presenting is the mark of a tested comedy club veteran, if nothing else. Um, Chris Rock uh, did manage to continue with his uh, his duties following that incident, but it was a bit hard to watch. 
Well, coming up, uh, James Blend is going to talk to his good friend, Scott Box. He's the author of Heroic Disgrace, Order Out of Chaos, Hope Out of Fear, A Worship Hero Story. That's coming up next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As promised, here's James Blend in his conversation with Scott Box, author of Heroic Disgrace. Thanks, Georgine. I am really excited about this next interview because it covers something really important that uh, we don't talk about quite as often as we can. And uh, mental illness in the in the Christian world is, is a real thing, and it exists. And uh, worship leader Scott Box's first book, Heroic Disgrace, talks about his journey with bipolar disorder, and it uh, talks about how it brought him closer to Christ, how it caught, taught him to be desperate for Christ, and uh, it is a fantastic read. It is imp- an important book, and uh, I'm certainly glad to have him with us today. The book, again, Heroic Disgrace, and uh, he joins us from Central Oregon, and uh, full disclosure for all, he's also been a friend of mine for about 25 years. Scott Box, <laughs> thanks for joining me. Hey, James. It's a pleasure to be here, and I love hearing your voice, man. Thanks for talking about my book today, and you're right. It's a big deal to talk about mental illness, especially in the Christian community. I think, uh, you know, it's certainly, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, especially in these post-pandemic days, it is so important uh, to be mindful of our own mind um, because of the fact that, uh, you know, we've all, as as a society, been through a lot. Talk a little bit. Let's go back to the absolute earliest days. I think some people come with, up with the misconception that if you if you have a mental illness, you must have had a terrible upbringing. Talk a little <laughs> bit about your upbringing and uh, kind of explain to people about uh, how you were raised. Golly, that's so true. I I had I really had an amazing upbringing. I had great parents and. Uh, I'm the oldest of three kids, and so, uh, you know, I've got probably the typical oldest child uh, issues, <laughs> but but from a stable, from, I came from a stable home, and I didn't come from a place of, of chaos and, and fear, if you will, so... So, so yeah. If, if that answers kind of your question as far as my my background, that's the that's the very basics. But I had a great dad. I had a great mom. Yeah, it's one of those things that uh, you know. Certainly, I know a lot of people do have bad upbringings and it causes things. And I certainly don't discount that. But for those of us who consider ourselves to have had regular or you know not regular, but uh, right. what's considered. Right. Normal. There's no such thing, but, (laughs) you know, normal is only a setting on the dryer. Um, You know, I, I I look at, I look at my upbringing and it was, it was fairly common, typical, whatever. But as I, as I've grown to realize, as I, as I've worked through my own anxiety disorder, both of my parents had severe anxiety. And I only recognize that in looking in retrospect. Uh, both it it was different in both of them and how they handled it, but uh, certainly you know it, you don't ha- it does not matter what your background is. Mental illness hits everybody. Well, and I I think James, the thing for me that was so staggering that the thing that 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 cut me off at the knees or or you know whatever it, whatever analogy you want to use was I I had my dad was a, a role model of giant proportions for me. Uh, he, 
especially in public, uh, dad, dad was, and just managed himself so smoothly. And <laughs> I'm just not that guy. I'm, I'm not very smooth. <laughs> and, and so I felt like I had these giant shoes to fill. And then as life, as I grew into adult life, I realized I was my own person. And yet I, I was still trying to fill the shoes of my dad. And that was, that was a really, that was a rough, that was a rough thing because I, I, I couldn't, I'm not, I'm not my dad. I'm Scott box, not Tom box. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it, you know, certainly I, I'm, you know, having met your father, I, I yeah, yeah. You, you're not your father and that's neither a compliment nor an insult. It's just the reality of it. Uh, right. Why and there's you, anxiety. There's anxiety that goes around that, though. For or at least that's what I I experienced in my journey. Kind of. Let's continue a little bit on your journey. I mean, it's certainly uh, it's it's one I'm quite familiar with. As I, I, I suppose I've played a small part in it over the years. Oh, um, yeah. The talk about your kind of your transition. Um, you know, you went to college in in Newburgh, um, and you basically stayed in town afterwards. Talk about the life transitions that occurred um, as you transitioned from a student into working at George Fox, you know, meeting your wife, and, and then inevitably uh, winding up a worship leader. Yeah. So the worship stuff happened back in uh, kind of the music side of things happened when I was uh, dating a girl in high school. And that that just became a part of, of my journey. And frankly, I'll say that, that that, quite honestly, really helped keep me on the straight and narrow as far as even sexual purity uh, back in high school because I was on platform in front of people and I didn't want to, I didn't want to quote screw up and uh, so so that was that was a blessing really to have that music church slash church worship component uh, connected to my life you know, from right around 16, 17, 18 years old, I carried that into college. And then, uh, yeah, I, I had been a baseball player, uh, went to George Fox, was recruited to play there and then ended up throwing my arm out playing semi-pro, uh, baseball, at, which is like my sophomore summer. And anyway, uh, baseball needed to be done. And so I helped at George Fox as the, the chapel band leader Met Carrie Ann. We got married after college. Uh, helped at a church plant up in Seattle, but then kind of just got our backsides kicked. Ministry can do that, <laughs> and so and then we ended up back in Newburgh uh, the second year of our marriage. And I was helping at George Fox, and that's when you and I met. Mm-hmm. You were working for a promotion company uh, and or a production company. And we had the opportunity to to hang out together, and that's right around when, kind of, in my book, I I say the feces hit the fan, and that's that's right about when it when it happened. So pardon me for the uh, the crass delivery on that, but that's one of the subsections in my book, even. Well, let's let's get into this a little bit. Uh, we've got to break in about two minutes, but I want I want to get the started. Let's talk about you know when you first realized something not right here yeah well i didn't i didn't know how to i didn't know how to identify it james i i, I knew that as carrie ann and i were were 
you know, young, married, and we had just had a child. Our, our first, our firstborn was a daughter, and I didn't know what. what I didn't know there. There was nothing. There was no label to put on why I was having these massive highs. And why I was also then every time I would have this incredible high, I would drop down into this ridiculous low. And I will be honest that I loved the highs. There, there were aspects that were really kind of drug-like, uh, but we can talk about that more uh, down the road. Absolutely. My guest is Scott Box. His book is Heroic Disgrace. Um, this is James Blinn, the producer of the show, uh, graciously being handed the microphone by Georgine Rice. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Make no mistake about it. Uh, and Georgine will be back with us in just a little while. And so will we after we take this break here on The Georgine Rice Show on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blind, sitting in for a few moments with uh, for Georgine Rice, and uh, she'll be back with you in the next segment. I'm speaking today with Scott Box's book, Heroic Disgrace. And uh, before before we get back into it, for folks who want to check the book out, uh, who heard about it in the last segment, how can they grab a hold of it? You bet. Heroic.com is the the best place to go. Obviously, it's any place where books are sold, uh, but you can find me. Uh, well, that just answers your question. How about that? <laughs> there we go. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll uh, mention that again. If you missed that, we'll mention that again at the end of the segment. Um, Scott Box is uh, here to talk about his journey with uh, bipolar and okay. um, certainly uh, in the Christian community, uh, you know, mental illness um, is uh, a, a big topic right now, especially coming out of the pandemic. Before we get back to our conversation a little bit, uh, for somebody with bipolar, what was the pandemic like for you? Oh, uh, it was brutal. I, I, I will tell you the thing, that's such a great question, James. The thing that drove me nuts was not being able to see faces. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a fairly conservative person anyway, so I, I didn't like the whole face mask thing. But we don't need to get into that other than to say that I hated not being able to use my own face uh, and then to read other people's faces. I hated the constriction. I, it was, it was really, really difficult for me uh, from an irritation standpoint because of uh, the, the way that irritation crosses over into the, the symptoms of, of bipolar disorder is rough. Yeah. I, I, you know, obviously as somebody with an anxiety disorder and ADD who needs a routine, um, it, it was, you know, the, the 15 months spent working from home on the show uh, oh, was was yeah. complex at times. And I, I get it. I mean, it's certainly and, and the I'm sure I will feel the after effects like many people for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. This this uh, this is this is going to have had a profound long term effect on culture, society. And it, frankly, I. I know that we're done with it in, in some respects, but, but you're right. It, it, the long-term lingering effects, uh, especially in the younger generation, uh, is we're, we have yet to see the gigantic influence it will have had. 
So getting back to our conversation that we had, uh, we're having before the uh, before the break. Um, you talked a bit about know, not knowing what was going on, you know, the highs, the lows, and whatnot. Talk about your yeah. when you were initially diagnosed, what was what, you know, and your thoughts about uh, one knowing what it was finally, <laughs> but also finding out what yeah. it was. Yeah. So I, my experience might be very different than than other folks' experience. When you get a diagnosis, it's like, oh no, we've got a thing. You know, fill in the blank. Uh, in in my case, things had been so bad for so long, and so I was about twenty five years old, and when when things kind of got crazy, if you will, and then progressively got more and more difficult. Crazy is not the right way to say it, but but uh, by the time diagnosis hit, I was thirty years old, or when when I got the diagnosis, I was so thankful to have a, a something to call what was wrong with me. And the fact that bipolar two disorder was the thing that they gave me. I, I remember being in the car with Carrie Ann, my wife, as we were hopping on interstate five heading from Salem, Oregon, back North, uh, Northwest to, to Newburgh and being like, yes, there's this thing. And, and not only is it there a name for it, but there's, there's, you know, there's strategy in which to, to use, to, to get healthy again. And, oh, James, that was such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that that's, sometimes it's, it, it is the power of knowing. So let's talk about, I mean, obviously a big part of this book and the main, I'm sure, you know, one of the main reasons to even write it, you know, is your faith um, and, and yeah. how it has endured and grown um, through the chaos and uh, desperation. Yeah. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. Well, here's the thing. Uh, bipolar disorder for me forced me to rely on Jesus in a way I never realized I was designed to rely on Jesus. That's the catch. It's not like that I, was, I, I, I didn't know that I needed to know Jesus more, that type of thing. It was that I had this massive recognition that I— I'm designed to rely on Jesus. I hit the end of my rope. I hit the end of me uh, at a point where I, I think I was, maybe what I mean is I was at an age where I'm so much younger than other people that finally, or that don't hit the end of themselves until, you know, maybe they're 60, 70, 80 years old, or they get a terminal diagnosis for something. And they're like, God, they cry out to God. In my case, I hit the end of me when I was 30 years old, if you will. And bipolar disorder forced me to rely on Jesus in a way that I then recognized, oh, man, I've been designed for this. I'm actually, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Uh, so if that answers your question, I, I, I hope it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want to... Um... Change gears a little bit. Talk, talking about the book, um, as as we are running short on time, I want to I, I want to cover one thing. Uh, you know, the book again is heroic disgrace, and the forward is written by Brian Head Welch of Corn. Yes. Now yes. <laughs> he he himself is an amazing story. Uh, talk a little bit about your your relationship there. Yeah, you bet. Brian is my first cousin, and I have watched Brian 
since I think it was 2005 when Brian had this incredible experience with Jesus in his life. And uh, when I say incredible, I mean to the point where uh, he, God, got a, God got a hold of him in such a way that Brian was able to essentially flush methamphetamines down the toilet and never go back to them, which is, as most people know, almost impossible to do. Uh, Brian has played a gigantic role in my life in particular because I was able to see Brian live a lifestyle that changed, that changed me. I'm here. Here's the, the, the thing that I use in the book is that the rock star taught the worship leader, <laughs> me, how to worship. <laughs> and that was just such a mind blowing experience, uh, to, to see that I needed to live my life the way that my rock star cousin was living his life once Jesus got a hold of him, James. Yeah, I remember calling you the, when, when that news came out and said, is that true? Uh, because <laughs> know, it just man. seemed so unbelievable. And yeah, I, I remember well, you... a, couple, a couple years later when uh, we had a chance to meet your cousin. And, I yeah. mean, one of the things that I've always noticed about you is, I mean, you have a kind and gentle spirit. And I was not <laughs> expecting that from Brian, but that was 100%. No. There was just... You see this rock star looking fellow and the kindness and warmth in his eyes. It was, it was, it was something else and only something Christ could have done. Yes. Yes, exactly. Brian is a special individual because, I mean, he, because of what Christ has done in his life and his, he is, he is gentle, uh, as you say, and graceful, uh, gracious, just as you say, it's, it's, and I'm not just saying that because he's famous. It's because it's true. You're right, James. Last thing for me, the, um, if, if you had to describe the book in, in a very short period of time, but the most important part and what's most important to you that people understand, what would that be? You bet. Heroic Disgrace, I would say, James, is a story for anyone who has been touched by the, the painful hopelessness of mental illness. Uh, that's the bottom line. It's, it's for any of us that have struggled with, with, in my case, bipolar disorder or mental illness of any kind. Fantastic. And again, where can folks get the book? You bet. Uh, HeroicDisgrace.com is where you can find me. You can also find me at Worship Hero on Facebook, where I do a ton of I put a ton of material, and then uh, I've got a new YouTube channel. Uh, you can search for Heroic Disgrace on YouTube. Scott Box, it is it has not only been an honor to talk to you about this book, it's been an honor to be your friend, and I Thank certainly um, am praying for this book. I'm praying that the right people read it, the right people see it, the right people hear it, and that people will read it with an open heart and an open mind. And thanks for joining us on The Georgine Rice Show. My pleasure, James Bland. We'll be back with more of The Georgine Rice Show, and specifically Georgine Rice. Coming up on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. The book is published by Equip, and she'll be joining us in the first hour of tomorrow's program. Looking forward to that conversation. And by the way, I'll conduct that interview myself.
<laughs> well, in recent years, we've um, covered a number of uh, places where the persecution of Christians is growing and opportunities for us to pray. In fact, this weekend, we were encouraged as the church, as the body of Christ, to remember the persecuted church. And we've talked about what's happening in um, Nigeria, what's happening in um, various places around the world. And I wanted to point out that in recent years, the gospel has spread rapidly in Niger. The church has grown there. More Christians in the West African country have also begun to experience persecution. Now, this isn't surprising. The scripture says that that's what we can expect. What is surprising is that we have faced here in this country so little persecution, although that may that may be changing. Two million of Niger's 21 million citizens, about nine percent of the population, are Fulani. Now, we've heard a lot of about the Fulani in the news. They have historically played an important role in the spread of Islam in West Africa. And most members of the the tribe rather are still Muslim. Well, in some parts of the region, militant Islamic Fulani have violently attacked Christians in neighboring Nigeria, for example. They frequently attack Christian villages in the northern part of the country, and they often do so in cooperation with the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram. We've all followed stories of young girls, uh, members of Christian schools who have been simply taken away. Well, the Fulani in Niger, however, are more often um, open to the gospel than many in Nigeria. And Fulani frontline workers equipped with audio Bibles and motorcycles are now reaching more villages with the good news. The gospel is spreading in Niger. Another people group, Tuareg, uh, live in a vast section of the Sahara, stretching from the Niger into Algeria, Burkina Faso, Libya, and Mali. Well, as a a semi-nomadic people, they travel with their herds of livestock on a seasonal basis, but they also live on designated farmland. In Niger, 2.6 million people, or 11% of the population, uh, fall into that category. They are Tuaregs. Uh, The evangelists distribute print and audio Bibles to those who come to faith in Christ among this people group. Both Fulani and the Tuareg, who turn to Christ, face persecution from Muslim family members and others in the community. And again, this is no surprise, given what the scripture says, what Jesus himself said about what we are to expect. Now, for us, it's probably quite different. We may be rejected by family and friends, and it's no less painless when that's the case. But the kind of persecution they're experiencing in Niger can be more dramatic. And although Christians there enjoy the political freedom to follow Christ, at least on paper, in their predominantly Islamic nation, extremists there from Mali, Burkina Faso, and Nigeria are crossing into Niger and into uh, other neighboring counties, rather countries, to attack Christians. Now, the extremist group, often linked with the self-proclaimed Islamic State, or ISIS, and Al-Qaeda, they've also kidnapped and killed hundreds of community leaders, regardless of their religion. Their goal is to establish an Islamic caliphate and um, amid the disorder that they have created. They create the disorder, they create the pretext for uh, overwhelming the system that exists, and take over. Well, our Nigerian brothers and sisters in Christ need our prayers and to learn some specific ways we can pray for them. I wanted to offer three suggestions. How can we pray for Christian brothers and sisters in Niger and for that matter, other places around the world where uh, persecution is the norm? 
pray for Fulani and to and to our Christians who proclaim the gospel despite the threat of persecution from family members and tribesmen. Now, you think about it, they hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, and immediately, and we read about this in Scripture, where people who made the decision to follow Christ, to acknowledge Him as the Messiah, the Son of God, and to uh, devote their lives to Him, suffered severe persecution. That's the case here in the 21st century. Pray for the protection of Christians living near the border, where Islamic extremists often attack them. They cross the border, and the most convenient people there are those who are living close to the border or on the border. And pray for Muslims who hear the gospel this year and place their faith in Jesus. Pray that they'll find fellowship with other local Christians, which can be risky, and be able to get their own copy of God's Word to help them grow in faith. I think I've mentioned here before, when I traveled to China and I had the the opportunity on several occasions to do so and to meet with members of the underground church to smuggle Bibles into the country. And on a few occasions, not not every time, but a few occasions to actually carry those Bibles and place them into hand, the hands of individuals who had been praying for their own copy of God's word and to hear their response, to see the expressions on their faces, such great delight to receive this treasure that isn't readily available as it is here. We can get a Bible of every description, a Bible for dog lovers, a Bible in pink, women's Bible, men's Bible, a toddler's Bible, a picture Bible. We have access to so many versions of God's word. Uh, but for these people, it was um, it was as if we had given them the hope diamond, which in a sense, I suppose we did, the hope of God's word, and to have the opportunity in the leisure of their um, of their regular life in the comfort of their own home, although they might have to uh, do so in 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 private, uh, to have the opportunity to open God's word and read it. I remember one very old Chinese woman who had been praying for decades for a copy of God's word that she could call her own. As you might recall, in some cases, and this was several years ago, things may have changed in some areas since then, but there were bits and pieces of scripture, maybe pages or sections, and um, pastors and evangelists would go from one location to the other and share what portion of the scripture they had, but it wasn't necessarily um, owned or held by members of a particular congregation. But this older woman who had prayed for decades for God's word, she wept when she held in her hands what she had uh, been praying for and was an answer to prayer. She treasured and understood the value of what she held in her hands. And I think about uh, oftentimes how little we value um, the fact that God's word is readily available to us or how freq- how infrequently we avail ourselves of opening his word and um, hearing what he has to say to us through his word and how the Holy Spirit helps to teach us and to give us understanding of what we're reading. In any case, um, these Nigerian or Niger Christians are different from Nigerians, but Niger uh, new believers we are to pray for them that they would find fellowship with other local Christians and be able to get their own copy of God's word to help them grow. It's fascinating to me to learn how the church is growing in areas where it's improbable, it's unlikely, it's dangerous, it's difficult. There is no, um, not necessarily in this case, but in places where there is no obvious, clear, free Christian witness, God is reaching uh, the hearts of people. And it's it's so encouraging, but it's also an opportunity for us to remember those. We may not know the country they're from. We may not know their names or their specific stories, but we can pray 
for those who are persecuted for their faith. New believers, those who faithfully commit themselves to sharing God's word with their countrymen, with their family members, and suffer greatly as a consequence. We can come alongside and pray for them. And this is just the latest example that you might consider adding to your list of those for whom you pray. Well, we are out of time. Once again, tomorrow on the program, my guest will be Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. I want to thank James Blend for, well, conducting an interview with a close friend and producing today's program. Sam Moppin for engineering. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.